Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to The Bill Press Show. I'm Jason Dick. I'm the leadership editor at Roll Call and I'm subbing in for Bill Press, who is sailing around Antarctica as we speak right now. <laughs> he wanted to be as far away from town as possible <laughs> last night uh, during Donald Trump's first official State of the Union. And uh, we're going to have a full recap of the State of the Union, but first, Peter Ogburn will have his part of this delightful show. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news this morning. Okay, so it's been about four months since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Yesterday, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, said they announced they are going to stop new shipments of food and water to the island. This did not sit terribly well with uh, members of Congress who have a, you know, sort of a stake in it. Bill Nelson and Marco Rubio, right. Democrat and Republican, uh, went went to the floor and were, were not terribly pleased. Well, it's it's sort of the, the sort of the background on this is they were still sort of uh, negotiating. FEMA and Puerto Rico were negotiating when this whole thing was going to stop. Mm -hmm. And Puerto Rico mm -hmm. said they were completely blindsided by this. They had no idea. They were still in talks with FEMA on a timetable for when they would assume their own distribution of food and water. And, and FEMA's explanation was, it's all cool. Yeah. Everything is fine. <laughs> you, I mean, guys are, uh, you guys are good, right? right? Yeah. You guys are good, right? <laughs> and then they just, and then they moved on, I guess. Anyway. Uh, Dealing with, like, burst pipes in the White House or something. Yeah. yeah. It's cold. Yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, last night was the State of the Union. You hear about this, folks? Do you hear this one? Uh, State of the Union was last night. My favorite part of the State of the Union is who is the designated survivor? Yes. Who is the designated survivor? Who was it last night? Who would be the president should some horrible ca catastrophic event strike the Capitol? Sonny Perdue. Sonny Perdue. <laughs> Agriculture Secretary. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. Was your, going your, 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 agri your farm subsidies will continue unabated and uninterrupted <laughs> in the ca case of nuclear catastrophe. If folks, we might have had a nuclear catastrophe. Everything is completely ruined and wrong, except for your chicken. Now, who would play him on Designated Survivor? Not Kiefer Sutherland. Definitely not Kiefer Sutherland. Um, like Strother Martin, you know? <laughs> I guess he's not alive anymore. Uh, so yeah. maybe not Strother Martin. But still, that's a pretty good. Right. That's pretty good. So Sonny Perdue would have been president. That's the warden and cool hand Luke Thank for you, you, uh, you kids out there. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are fr- frantically Googling. <laughs> Who the hell is Strother Martin? <laughs> uh, now we know. Anyway, so Sonny Perdue would have been the de- or was the designated survivor should something horrible have happened last night. He would have taken over the government, uh, but that is not something that we had to worry about. We actually had an interesting conversation with this yesterday with Chris Liu, who's the former assistant or, or excuse me, Deputy Secretary of Labor, and he said he was sort of in charge of informing designated survivors during the Obama administration that they were the designated survivors. And he said one year it was Eric Holder, and he went and told Eric Holder, you're going to be the designated survivor. And Eric Holder said, I'm not interested in that. Thank you. (laughs) No, thanks. No, thanks. (laughs) I'd rather just go up in flames. And then as Chris Lou said, the next call he got was from Rahm Emanuel, and he convinced him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one year in Pat Leahy... Who's the Senate president pro tem, but not a member of the cabinet, was the designated survivor because he's in the line of oh, um, yeah, sure. of, uh, presidency. I mean, I, this is 2014, I think, uh, something like that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that whole thing. By the way, uh, we also talked a, a, a couple of weeks ago about the Hawaii missile alert that went out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Hawaii, they put, out Trouble a missile, in paradise. But they, they put out a missile alert saying that there was going to be a missile that was going to strike the island imminently. And the immediate explanation we got for this was well there was a test and then there was a real alert and they're right next to each other and he just simply hit the wrong button well the washington post reports is it a big button though I, no they're, they're like identical buttons and it's not like it's the like diet a, coke button it's like a drop down menu <laughs> and it's the difference between hitting like two two little things anyway it turns out he sent this warning thinking that there was an actual missile coming he misunderstood a drill that was underway and thought that it had actually been fired and so he hit an actual alert thinking there was a missile coming everybody has a bad day On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Dick, welcome back. I am Jason Dick, and I am subbing in for Bill Press, who is sailing the high seas. Uh, he'll be back in studio eventually, but we're going to have a little fun in his stead. Uh, last night was the State of the Union. It was Donald Trump's first official State of the Union for uh, for those of you who could possibly care about these sort of uh, delineations. Uh, the, the very first speech that he gave last year was not an official State of the Union because he hadn't been president long enough, theoretically, to, uh, to take stock of the State of the Union. So what do this, they officially call those? Like an address it, it's to a the joint, joint address, joint address, to, okay. joint address to Congress. Uh, I mean, you know, the, it, you, you say you know you're, you're fascinated by the designated uh, sur- survivor stuff, Peter. Love uh, it. I, I actually, I'm, I'm fascinated by states of the union and and the addresses that new presidents give. Uh, sometimes you have a, a couple, you know, like uh, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford actually gave, and Lyndon Johnson gave states of the union on their way out. Uh, like, oh yeah, yeah. Sure. They, they uh, and you know, they, every once in a while, somebody just skips it and they they go back to the old written message. You know, Wood, Woodrow Wilson was the first to give a State of the Union uh, in in person, and uh, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, pearl clutching uh, at, at at the time because it was like, whoa, what, what is he doing up here? Uh, and you know, so, so it is sort of fascinating that people you know do different things. I couldn't help uh, but notice when I was going through some of this, when I, was, I wrote a story for Roll Call recently about what presidents say, particularly when they their party controls both chambers of Congress, what they say going into that first midterm. 
And uh, Harry Truman, who had become president the year before, in 1945, in April 1945, when uh, Fe- Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, he went on to uh, defeat the Nazis and the Japanese. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, okay. and, and World War II. <laughs> uh, and, and then he had pretty good approval ratings uh, in, in January of of 1946, he just delivered a written message that was also combined with his budget request. It was this gigantic document. My, the printer is still going at roll call uh, for, because I've made the mistake of printing it. <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 then they lost the majority. The Democrats lost the majority that year. I mean, like apparently, defeating Nazism and and Imperial Japan is is. The political benefit is is very short lived. Not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> very short lived. You're gonna ride that wave for a little while longer, man. <laughs> Come on. I mean, Truman did uh, win re-election. You know, again, sort of against all odds in 1948. Actually, it's it's always weird to say, did he win re-election or just win election? Sure. Uh, but he won in 1948, and uh, and, and but it, <laughs> I've just always been amused by this. Yeah. That that the the uh, political benefits of of ending <laughs> the world's greatest conflict. Uh, <laughs> Reflection point yeah. in human history. Yeah, there's is, a short bump yeah, there, right? It's just a, it's a very short-lived bump. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> like the Obama administration was able to ride the whole killing of Osama bin Laden right. thing for a little while, but like and actually, taking us out of the Great Depression, sure. you know, saving the auto yeah. industry, things like this, all very short-lived. Very you know? short-lived. <laughs> yeah, politics moves very quickly. <laughs> you defeat the Nazis, you get like a three-week bump. Well, we also we we think we have a short attention span. I mean, like, did people really not not remember that? Like, oh yeah, what was that thing? Last year, oh yeah, we dropped a bomb right. like that ended a war, a worldwide conflict. Anyway, yeah, uh, it, it is it is sort of fascinating. So, so this president, yeah. this is his first official State of the Union, and um, I I have to, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this with our first guest, John Bennett, who's a, a roll calls White House correspondent. But you know, th- there seemed to be a, a, a general lack of of zip. You know, I mean, th- these these events. I mean, regardless of your political affiliation. They have a. They bring with them a lot of energy, and and there it was a. I mean, maybe it was the, you know, the the Me Too attitude, and also just that 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 we're you know they're they're we're trying to reflect a lot of different things that are happening in our culture right mm-hmm. now. There's a lot of di- different protests that are going on, but it it was it was a dour sort of mood even on the Republican side. You know, I I have to say, <clears throat> I've been working with Bill for this, this is Bill Press, who's Bill sailing, Press. yeah, sailing around the world right Bill, now. Bill Press, yeah. who is yeah, unaccounted for. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we love you, Bill. He he and I've been doing the show. I've been working for Bill for this is going to be thirteen years, twelve years coming up on twelve years, mm-hmm. right? I've watched the State of the Union every single year. I remember I was telling Ray yesterday, like our very first one, we stayed up all night. It was George W. Bush. We pulled audio. We just we watched the whole thing. We stayed at work. We did the show the next morning. I did not watch the State of the Union last night. Not one minute of it. And part of it is because. I, and there was I, no FOMO. Zero. I woke up this morning after the most peaceful sleep. It was wonderful. I felt so refreshed. I didn't have to stay. And also, I'm not getting hammered all the time now. So, like, these political events are a lot less fun. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. I mean, they they do help. Like the 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 brown stuff does help. Sort of. Sav things. Over. State of the Union starts at around nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. Usually by seven thirty, I'm half in the bag. Right. By the time we get to the actual speech, eh, who cares? Yeah. It's a lot more fun that way. But I didn't. I, I didn't watch any of it last night. And part of it is you. You hit on it a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Like it was missing the zip. Well, I, again, it, 
I'm saying this as a partisan, right? But whether you are a partisan or not, or, or Democrat or Republican, wherever you fall, right, on the spectrum, I don't think that anything that Donald Trump said last night really honestly matters. Because he will change his opinion mm-hmm. and his views on anything. And Bill yesterday said that he went back and he watched his address to the nation uh, before it was officially a state of the union last year, last February. And there was that line of the time for petty fights and disagreements are behind us. (laughs) And when I think of 2017. It's just your perspective. Is it ahead or behind? Right. If you're looking at like really far in the future. I guess that's a good point. (laughs) I guess that's a good point. So, like, here he is saying that he wants to stop petty fights. And when I think of 2017 and Donald Trump, I can think of 10 petty fights that he started. So, like, again, I know that might be a little, you know, focusing on what's not actually important. But, again, like, you have this pulpit. You have this ability to control the message. You have this ability to have this free airtime to say whatever it is that you want to say to the people of America. And it really, honestly, with Donald Trump, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And I'm sorry. I, I, this, is not, this is like a clip from Meatballs, the Bill Murray <laughs> clip. You know, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, birth is a curse. Existence is a prison. Uh, nothing matters. Uh, <laughs> so we I, live in hell. What one? I mean, what you know? In from my, I was not in the gallery itself. Okay, uh, we, we had we had a couple seats uh, for for roll call and and for our CQ brethren, and we we had a couple of other folks in there um, in in the chamber. So I was like free to like walk around Stat Hall, which is always this like sort of amusing kind of zoo. Yeah, and then I you know sort of perched in the periodical press gallery. In our in our seat there to watch the speech, and when the president came in, you know, there's this. It is kind of this funny like procession, like for about twenty twenty five minutes of senators and cabinet members, and and you know there are different backups uh, at, at different sure. points. Uh, Supreme Court justices, Supreme Court just only like, four, yeah, only four uh, last, la- last night, right? night um, attended, and it. It is sort of fascinating to see who is who clumps up, you know, in in the aisle to see who, you know, you know, wants to, you know, sort of shake Trump's hand, which I think is kind of funny. This must be hell for him because he really doesn't like. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like to shake hands. He doesn't like Um, and 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 to have all these people just kind of pawing him. But I mean, it it is 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 kind of funny. but I mean, maybe that's just I just delight in other people's pain. Uh, but same, uh, <laughs> same. But um, you know, predominantly Republicans. It, it is usually it is a mix. It's it's a mix of, of of bipartisan, you know, sort of people from across the aisle and across the different chambers. Because you know, you get you can get in there and you can take your seat early, yeah. and and stake it out so that you can be close to the dais or the rostrum, or just you know position yourself so you can have a few words with the president. That did not seem to be the case for Democrats. Now, there were, obviously, there were a ton of Republicans who were there. Um, the only Democrat I saw, and, and you know, this, this may have not been the case. Maybe I didn't see every single one. But the only Democrat that I saw him, uh, you know, sort of have a moment with in the aisle was, was Dick Durbin, mm. which is not, ter- is not insignificant because Durbin with Lindsey Graham is leading this you know, bipartisan group of people trying to negotiate an immigration, um, you know, solution for for DACA and, and a number of levels. So the fact that he and Durbin like interacted is it's not 
insignificant, but it 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 was striking to me because usually, you know, even even for George W. Bush, you know, Elliot Engel was right there, you know, at the at the front. He's one of those guys who gets there early. Yeah. This is a Democrat from New York. Uh, and you know, and I didn't. I didn't see a lot of that. I saw right. a lot of Republicans, but not a lot of Democrats. I, I actually have. I talk about Donald Trump uh, disrupting American norms and the things that we believe in. <clears throat> Elliot Engel did not camp out for his seat after twenty nine years. He's been doing it for twenty nine years. He would camp out and be the very first person to get the seat right on the aisle, mm-hmm. and he'd stay there all day. So that he'd be able to shake whatever president's hand was that came through. He did not do it last night. I mean, these are it, – it's kind of like, you know, once – it was in the early 90s, you know, we saw these like four straight blowouts in the Super Bowl and eventually people <laughs> just kind of stopped watching it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if, if it's just a fatigue in general. I mean, 29 years is a long, long That's time. a long time yeah, to I do mean, anything. To, to – uh, to do too do much of anything. But like there there does – it is – it was it was kind of remarkable. And then – so we get into the speech, right? And the speech itself, um, it how long was it? Like an hour and a half? I mean, this is among the longer speeches, yeah. a, a longer longer State of the Union addresses. Yeah, it was a long speech. And, ninety and minutes. Ninety minutes. So I mean, and some of that was, you know, there were a lot of applause lines, you know, like pep- peppered in there. There were a lot of moments you know where he recognized people um you know the the usually you know the, the 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 folks the guests of the president or the first lady they're brought um they're brought in and they are you know recognized toward the end of the speech for whatever sort of act of heroism you know or or you know their community service or their military service whatever what have you um right off the bat <laughs> you know we we saw that people were you know being recognized and that it it had this weird um, effect of actually stopping the speech. So when when there would be some momentum, you know, there would be this like stoppage, just like boom, you know, we're gonna stop and we're gonna do like a few minutes of applause. And 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 some of these stories are like incredibly compelling. You know, there's a police officer who like ad- adopted, you know, a, a, a heroin addict's baby. Um, you know, there was a de- mm-hmm. defector from North Korea. Uh, who had brought his his crutches in, you know, mm-hmm. that he had, you know, I mean, you know, there there were some compelling moments there. And and it's not to take anything away from from those moments, but they did they they brought the speech to sort of a a screeching halt. It was like the, the, because they were peppered throughout the speech instead yeah. of like clustered in one, it it just it just took a long time to get through all the applause. Yeah. And also on that point, like I thought it was a Touching, I read about it. Like I said, I didn't watch it, but I thought it was a touching moment when he points out this cop uh, who adopted the, mm-hmm. the the baby from a heroin addict. But like knowing that Donald Trump is probably going to call the baby a loser today <laughs> takes a little bit of shine away from the moment. Like, and like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I just <laughs> that that to me is like, oh, that's that's a nice moment. And then right. I go, oh, wait a minute. He's not above. I mean, I mean, I don't think he's going to actually attack the baby, but he's not above that. Right. I it, mean, he has attacked babies though in past rallies and stuff. He's not above it, and <laughs> he definitely uses these stories as essentially props. Like that—that's right. He did it, it, it during the campaign. There was a moment where there was a baby crying, and he's like, "Hey, he, can we can we get that out of he here?" He literally you know? asked for the baby to be 
escorted out. I so he's about not that. above attacking an actual infant. That. I freaking completely forgot, but he did. He kicked a baby out of his rally. And and I I'm, and, again. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm I'm not trying to get like to, you know into just the you know like how a, a person approaches their their job and their ad libbing and so forth because some people I mean love Trump they they love the sure. way that he connects you know with his audiences and rallies. My mom, my dad. The, the, <laughs> but the the um the, this documentary that came out a couple months or a couple weeks ago the first the last year about the last year of the the Obama administration and particularly their foreign policy team. There's this moment uh, like toward the end of the of the movie where. Obama is giving a speech and he's got, um, you know, I think it's at the UN. Uh, and it's not the speech in the assembly, but it's a speech in sort of an ante room where he's giving an address and, and he's got John Kerry behind him. And, you know, this is like a, a kind of this like broader, bigger moment, right? Sure. And uh, somebody somebody had a kid in with him and like the pacifier like dropped like near the, the, the podium. And Obama just kind of stopped and said like, Oh, we've got a pacifier down. Threat to the president. I mean, it was just this like sort of moment, like where you you just kind of you brush off like those those light moments and, right. and sort of you know because I mean I would I would guess that if somebody like they they drop their baby's pacifier next to the president, they might be mortified, right? I mean, it's just like oh crap. Like, sure. I'm like embarrassing myself and my I'm scarring myself and my and my child in front of the most powerful man in the, on earth. And and like Obama was just like oh no big deal, you know like that. What's the worst you know? that could happen? The right. president of the United States isn't going to kick a baby out of right. the room. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> time to the... put petty fights behind us, Peter. <laughs> Get that your baby's a loser. Get him out of here. Uh, so, so one thing um, I'll I'll note, and because, and I don't want to sound like a like a gossip on this, but like the 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 um, the first lady, her parents, the so she came separately from the president. She came in a separate motorcade. Now, it, it's not um, it's it's not rare to have a first lady be in a separate vehicle sure. necessarily, but they usually leave the White House at the same time. And they usually go into the in the same motorcade, and they enter, you know, the 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 capital in the carriage entrance on the house side, and they, you know, and she's sort of whisked away to, you know, her her part of the gallery, and the president is lined up with cabinet and in congressional leaders and so forth. Um, she came separately in a in a sep- she came in a separate car, and you know, this is all coming on the you know the heels of the the Stormy Daniels. Um, sort of uh, fiasco <laughs> where she was uh, paid some hush money by, by the president's attorney, Michael Cohen, the the uh, who says guy, uh, <laughs> as, as I like to call him. <laughs> says who? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm sure that works very well with Bob Mueller. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give that a shot. Yeah. See how that works. Um, but, you know, and, and I thought, oh, no big deal, right? But it actually deviated from the if, if you will the run of show you yeah. know that 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 people were expecting uh the 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 formalized like the the president and first and and first lady you know they arrive and vice president pence and mrs pence, you know vice president and mrs pence arrive i mean there, that that there was a deviation there so this thing is maybe not over i don't who knows yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> all I can say is I've heard, as of you, as of a lot of people who pay attention, how Donald Trump has spoken about not just his marriage to Melania, but just marriage in general over the years. He's been very... He's got a lot of experience in it. Three of sure, them. yeah. Three of them I mean, already, keep trying. You know? 
but he's but he's talked openly about it. Normally, it's with Howard Stern, mm-hmm. right? Because Stern had him on all the time, mm-hmm. and because he's a great guest. Before he was president of the United States, he was just you know good copy. Um, but like, he talks all about uh, prenuptial agreements. He talks all about contracts that he's had with former wives about what they can and can't say in public, and if they do, how bad that could be for them. He's talked about. Um, openly cheating on his wives. I mean, I, I, this, this isn't gossip. This is from his mouth, right? Um, so do I think that there is a contract between Donald Trump and his wife Melania of what's allowed and what's not allowed? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Do I think that this is more of a business arrangement than uh, two lovers that have united together in, mar- in marital bliss. And sort of a, a business, yeah. uh, if you will. I, I mean, it's, it's a business more... contract. Sure. Right? I mean, look. Any marriage is a contract. Any marriage is a contract, but mm-hmm. I think this one is a lot more uh, spelled out mm-hmm. of what's allowed and what's not allowed and what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, 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 and again, I'm not trying to get into the gossip thing. I'm just talking about, like, he has said before, this is how he operates in marriage right. and in love. All right. So, like, do I think that they are two people who are in love? No, I don't. <laughs> Maybe at one point. Maybe at one point, right. perhaps. Right. Um, if you look at Melania's parents and you look at how much her dad looks like Donald Trump, that's a little unsettling. But maybe there's something there. <laughs> Maybe there's something there, but like it's 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 weird. And I mean, you know, I mean, you go back to the inauguration, right, where uh, Donald Trump and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and Melania all sort of kibitzed. Yeah, they, they looked they, like they were having a nice time. They were hanging out, but there's a moment where where Donald Trump just like gets out of the car and walks up to the White House, and and Barack Obama actually like helps Melania out of the car, like. Holds her hand as they go up the stairs, and Donald Trump is already at the top of the stairs. He just like he doesn't care. <laughs> and there have been multiple videos of like him trying to hold her hand and her jerking her hand away and all of that. And like again, I don't want to gossip. Like I like marriage is a difficult thing, no matter how happy you are or how how on the up and up it is, right? But I just don't think that this is a normal relationship. Yeah, I, although we're we're redefining what it means to be normal. Fair, now, right? <clears throat> totally fair. So, out of curiosity, so you you didn't watch the speech for the I first time. I didn't watch the speech. You know, in in since the Bush administration, the the Bush years. Don't I look refreshed? <laughs> you do. I was in bed at yeah. like eight forty five last <laughs> night. So, uh, do you think? I mean. Do you think you'll come back to it? You know, if if Trump is is still president next year, I mean, no. is is this really? No, I don't. No, I don't. And 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 again, I I I'm not trying to make this like a super partisan thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, because I watched all of the Bush ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it for work, and I also did it because I thought it was important. And mm-hmm. I think that look, I, I had a conversation with my one of my kids about this yesterday. Why do we even have the State of the Union? Right? Because I was watching some of the build up to the State of the Union yesterday. It was like what. Why do we? There was a countdown on CNN. There was a countdown for like three days. Uh, But I was in this conversation with my kids. They're like, why do we do this? I was like, look, this is a moment that whoever the president is gets uh, to say whatever they want, Mm -hmm. whatever they want. And not only is it important that they get to put their message out there, but it puts them on the record. And so we can go back and say, in the State of the Union, you said you would do this or this was a priority. However, your actions show that that is a different thing, right? Like, I, I understand the State of the Union, and I think it's a little, maybe a little outdated, but 
But it's, it's really supposed to be a, a, a look back. Like, sure, you know, right. This is the state of the union where we're at now. It's become this combination of like a brag sheet and a legislative agenda wish list. Yeah. And then and now thrown in with the guests, it's also a, you know, a recognition of like America. Yeah. Because America, you know, we've got we've got like cops and welders and defectors. <laughs> and I mean, it's just I mean, it, it is I think, you know, maybe this has something. I mean, we can and we can talk to John about this when when he gets in. Studio. I mean, like that. It is. It's becoming a little bit of a hodgepodge because, and, and it's felt that way. This is not just a Trump phenomena. Um, you know, some of the. I mean, it, it. It's. It's almost like Clinton started it. I. I want to think because he, there was just so much that he wanted to pack in to every single State of the Union, whether it was about school uniforms. Yeah, right, <laughs> or, right, or, I remember right, that one. Or, right. You know. I mean, it was just there was so much going on. And I all remember those. George W. Bush <laughs> saying he was going to stop. Testing on human animal hybrids. Right. And I was like, what the hell? Right. Was that a thing? My, my, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. My, that sounds like a science fiction movie. <laughs> my, my favorite was the uh, when, when he said that they were going to make energy out of switchgrass. Switchgrass! Uh, yes, remember switchgrass. Switch, switchgrass. I don't even, I mean, I grew up on a cattle ranch and I don't know what switchgrass <laughs> is. Somebody's got to tell me. I don't know if it's only in Iowa or something. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, or, switchgrass. Yeah, switchgrass. Switchgrass. <laughs> But I mean that that talk about the war on energy, you know, like I mean, like the, the uh, you know the the this mention that that Trump had of the 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 war on our energy, it was kind of a strange thing, but particularly beautiful clean coal. Yeah, uh, I mean that started with Bush. <laughs> you know, Bush was the one who was like, we're going to do an all of the above, you know, type energy program uh, that were. I mean, it, it's and Obama continued that. So this was where we got into. Fracking uh, of oil and gas. This is where we got into biomass fuels. I mean, there was just a bunch of, you know, approaches that the Bush administration and and the uh, Obama administration they wanted to pursue so that energy development was, you know, a big, you know, I mean, it, it was there. There were a lot of options that they could pursue, and you know, that's one of those like, you know, things that I mean is is has become like the the war on coal or you know the the war on energy sources and so forth. I, I don't know it was, it was sort of a strange phrase to pursue but um you know that didn't start that wasn't one it, it's not really um i mean we declared a lot of wars you know the war on drugs and um <clears throat> the war on poverty and so forth but I, you know there was never a, a a war on energy per se so um yeah it it it's uh it, it's one of those things where uh um, we're going to pursue a little bit more as we talk in the rest of the show. Coming up in the next half hour, we will have John Bennett, who is Roll Call's White House correspondent. We're going to talk about some of this deep policy stuff, and uh, we're uh, going to have a great show. Keep a listen. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I am Jason Dick. I'm the leadership editor at Roll Call, and I'm subbing for Bill. He is uh, scaling somewhere in Kathmandu. He's scaling a mountain. Uh, he, he wanted to get as far away from Washington as possible. Actually, I have no idea where Bill is. He's probably just sleeping in. Uh, <laughs> I'm joined in this half hour by our White House correspondent at Roll Call, John Bennett. You can follow him on Twitter, at Bennett. That's two N's, two T's, John T, a third T at the end. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit just uh, at at the beginning. Um, 
we you get accustomed to when you cover a White House as, as you have for for several years now. You get accustomed to different rituals. You know whether the State of the Union is one of them, and usually that entails uh, getting the speech at some point before <laughs> it's before it's delivered. Uh, last night we got the speech. Basically, as the president was entering the House chamber, and it was embargoed until the end, the conclusion of remarks, which is, you know, in, in, in you know, this was like underlined in yellow, uh, which was just kind of weird. I mean, because usually when they release a speech, it's like, here it is, you know, and, and you can start writing your copy off of it. I mean, right away, people broke the embargo. No, no big deal. But like, is this, I mean, last year we, we got it in sort of dribs and drabs. Like, is this the sort of, I mean, what's going on there? What, what, what did, did you get any indication of that when you were at the White House yesterday, that, that, that this was going to be first tweeted out partially and then, and then released in this strange manner? We it was pretty clear that that we were going to get some excerpts. Uh, the excerpts, though, were kind of just singing the hits, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of the the theme of the night from my perspective. But swinging, singing the tweets, singing the <laughs> tweets, uh, singing you know these big lofty things the president says, these kind of boasting things. That's what we got early on Twitter from the White House. But you know, I, it's actually it's standard operating procedure for them. They don't they don't usually give out the the full text. It is a departure from past White Houses, but this entire presidency is departure, uh, one big departure from from how things have gone in Washington. That's that's kind of how the president campaigned. That's the message he campaigned on. Um, you know, I didn't expect to get the full speech uh, before he walked in, but that's that's not uh, that's not that's normal for me, having dealt with with this mm-hmm. White House for over a year now. Um, and the the night was pretty much exactly what I expected uh, to kind of to toot my own horn if I can this early in the morning. Um, no, I there toot was, away, uh, tweet away. There, well, we don't have tweets yet, but it's early yet. Uh, the president does like to get up early. And, Is Fox and, and, and Friends tweet. on? Yep, yep, yep. There they are. Okay, uh, okay. Well, um, yeah, it, it was exactly what I expected. It was it was heavy on um, what the president and his team feel are, were accomplishments from from the first year. Not a lot of deep policy. I didn't hear, I didn't hear that much as far as major things go that were different than what the president has said, you know, on his Twitter feed in uh, pool sprays when they let guys like me into a room at the mm-hmm. end or the or the starting event at the White House. In other public remarks recently, uh, he speaks to Davos, Switzerland. They do this in major moments where they kind of just stack. Things the boss has said on top of each other, mm-hmm. maybe mix in some some new elements here and there, and that's what it felt like last night. It was a casserole mm-hmm. that your mom would have made, and you kind of you know you 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 eat on it for two or three days. That's what it felt like, and it just it just kept going, and it was just it was it was a lot of it was things that I had heard before. And and by the end of it, you know, it's late at night. You've been working all day. Um, you're thinking about the next work day ahead. You know, you kind of have to force yourself to to stick with it at the end, because you know, for for the B reporter, he's heard it before. But you have to listen for anything new. Um, and that's kind of what it felt like. They just they they gave the boss a speech to read that he would feel good about. And speaking of of you know, your mind starts to wander. You begin to think like. Okay, how much you know? You, you sort of look at the speech and you think like, okay, we got another page to go. How long? Oh, yeah. will, how long will that take? Like with the different applause lines, it did seem. And I'm I'm not saying this like to disparage. It just seemed like there was a point where 
the president kind of hit a wall, uh, and, and, yeah, and, and, and 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 you know toward toward the end, I think it was it was when the uh, when he, when he was talking when in, in sort of the North Korea part of it, mm-hmm. when he was talking about um, you know the defector and on and Otto Warbinger's like parents being there, and and there were just like sort of moments where. He, the delivery just sort of markedly slowed yeah, down. Absolutely, yeah. and there's there's a lot of ad libbing too in in this speech. I mean, not not like wholesale, but you know, he would throw in words like when he was talking about, or he, he said sadly, you know, right. and, and things like that. Which is you know, that's just a human thing to to mm-hmm. sort of ad lib off of a speech. Um, the, the, all these prepared remarks that the uh, Bill Press show, and like I, I have ignored every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they can't put me in a box here. Well, that's <laughs> that's also the president. The president is. I've I've joked um, that he's he's kind of the king of adjectives, right? And he loves to throw adjectives. Yeah, just look at just look at the tweets. Markedly, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, beautiful. That's one of his favorites too. Wonderful. Right. There's a lot of yeah. wonderful. There was so a he'll lot. do that. Right. Yeah, he'll do that. He likes to 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 sprinkle that that stuff in. Interesting that, you know, he did some test runs. They've had drafts going back and forth, of course, at the White House. Interesting that some of those adjectives weren't in uh, the, the prepared original. remarks. Right. Yeah. I, I, and and I, I'll, I promise I'll get away from the uh, the stage direction kind of, you know, part, part of this. But I, I was just sort of struck by it. I, I don't, I mean, obviously in a speech, in a prepared speech, you, you pause for emphasis. You want to signal to somebody, you know, where you want to stop and let the applause line work or emphasize a word. But this, there were, there were a lot of all caps in, in the prepared, like, remarks and testimony, or, you know, yeah. t- not testimony, it wasn't testimony, but like there, there were a lot of, you know, you know, emphasis here. I mean, sort of things, and it was uh, that seemed uh, again a, a, a bit of a departure. It is. Uh, they, you know, every president has you know quirks or or, or parts of his del- the delivery and how they do things um, that are unique, and this mm-hmm. is certainly unique uh, <clears throat> to to President Trump. I've spent some minutes in the last year when we get you know partial uh, partial quotes or whatever excerpts. Uh, changing all caps to to lowercase. Uh, again, this is standard uh, for him. It's standard for his staff. Uh, there are you know there are words that he wants to hit, and there are you know he he clearly wants that reminder. And you can see his you can see his body change when he's coming up on one of those all caps words, and he really wants to to drive home a point. Um, but but to see all caps in a State of the Union text, other than maybe the header, yeah, that was different. <laughs> so. Talking about the the speech and the writing of the speech, like this is a good transition point to talk about another story that you wrote uh, that is up on RollCall.com right now. It's it's uh, leading our site in our in our morning newsletter, and this is about Mark Short, who's the Legislative Affairs Director for uh, the, the Trump administration. Uh, Mark Short's been around for a while. He was the chief of staff for the Republican Conference uh, when Mike Pence, now the vice president, was the chairman of the Republican Conference uh, as an Indiana congressman, um, and. I, I, when we were first talking about this story, you know, the sort of the genesis of it, I mean, my, my thought was, I can't, I honestly can't remember the name of very many of, of Obama's legislative affairs directors. <laughs> I mean, they're just, I mean, it, and it's no, no knock on them. They're, no, they're all like wonderful people. But actually, I, I had to really think, like, oh, wait, was that the first guy? Or, and I couldn't remember. Mark Short is everywhere and that's a little bit about what your story is is about yeah he is he he absolutely is everywhere i mean <clears throat> sunday morning uh you know doing the usual sunday morning things and you flip on the on the television and you know uh, there's mark short on fox news sunday 
hour or so later, I'm at the gym. I look over. There's Mark Short on ABC. Um, he he he's a pro. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been around. He also worked for Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he. In the we had an inter- I sat down with him on Monday in his office at the at the White House, and he talked about you know working for Senator Hutchinson, working as chief of staff for the the House GOP conference. How you know those two jobs were really influential in teaching him both the uh, the communications part of this, the politics of Washington, and especially the the, the chief of staff job with the conference, uh, learning the legislative process. And you know, at, you listen to him talk about his background, and and you can see why he is kind of Trump's utility player. Mm-hmm. He can play a lot of different positions. You know, one minute he's in Chuck Schumer's office, and the next minute he's over uh, in in the Russell Building at the Rotunda doing, you know, two cable news hits. Mm-hmm. And he can't. He's he's kind of the guy that the White House seems to send out um, when they need to explain something that the president has said. When they need to put and them maybe calm people down. And yes, calm people. <laughs> I, you know, the reasonable messenger mm-hmm. is a way to think about Mark Short. He's both an inside player. It takes a million meetings. We see him when, when we're on the Hill doing reporting. Um, our, our colleagues standing out in hallways for hours at these meetings, waiting on Mark Short and others to come out. And and then he's on cable news mm-hmm. uh, that night, or he's 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 doing a, a broadcast network. And he he really kind of rounds out some of Trump's hard edges. And one of the things I I, I mean, Short has been a, a fixture in the Capitol, you know, since since the beginning um, of, of the term. Last year, but at the in particularly during the shutdown, you know, earlier this month, I guess we are still in January. We're still in January, the month that <laughs> will never end. Um, the uh, he really was. He seemed to be everywhere during the shutdown talks, and and really, and this is where you know, like you mentioned, these more, more recent Sunday show appearances. Now we are uh, just a little over a week away from the next shutdown deadline. That <laughs> got here quick, didn't it, it? It really did. It just it just happened so quickly. Uh, that look at the time. Uh, time for another shutdown. Uh, so in 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 the midst of you know reporting out your story, uh, does he seem concerned about this? Because they, I mean, it, you get like sort of mixed signals depending on who you talk to on Capitol Hill about how close or far away they are. From some sort of agreement on the budget, on the debt limit, on the dreamers. I mean, like it's all it, it's all one package, one moment, and it's all separate packages the next. Uh, how worried is Mark Short as we go into another uh, shutdown showdown, as uh, as the kids say? Well, get those countdown clocks ready, right? <laughs> um, you know, I don't think he is as concerned uh, this time as as he grew. You know, in the kind of forty eight hours before the, the the most recent shutdown, I talked to not only him, I also talked to um, a White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney briefly yesterday. Um, I talked about Mark Short, but got a couple questions in about uh, about other things, and one was the 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 this shutdown showdown, and both of them. They use similar language that they, they they just can't imagine that Democrats would want to shut this thing down again. Um, they 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 come across more as annoyed that they've un- they've been unable to strike the bigger deal, um, which is needed on uh, you know domestic and defense spending caps. Not to bore uh, our listeners here, they're very annoyed they haven't been able to strike that deal. Now they 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 sidestep questions about Republican involvement and in, in not being able to strike that deal, and then mm-hmm. with the defense spending question, how much is enough? 
former defense reporter asked the and the answer this former defense reporter will say it's never enough for defense it's it's never enough and democrats want more on domestic that has been a hard deal to come up with in the past it's especially hard for various reasons here they don't think the government will shut down next friday but they they neither of them could explain to me a clear strategy within the White House on avoiding it. In fact, Mulvaney used the term, I don't think it's quite a strategy. And it's stuck in my head. I'm not, I don't have any notes in front of me, but it's stuck in my head because, you know, you, you, I, we've been doing this long mm-hmm. enough where the first thought in your head is you might need a strategy. And he, he never, he didn't even go there. I followed up and, and I uh-huh. said, you probably, at some point you'll have to have a strategy. And, and what he and Short both said is, I just can't imagine Democrats want to do this again three weeks after they just shut down the government. That, that's kind of a gamble, though, as you yeah. and I know. That's a gamble. What, what, one thing worth noting is that, I mean, while it's true, you know, you need Democrats in the Senate to, to pass appropriations bill. You need to, you know, make sure you, you know, you clear any sort of procedural hurdles. Republicans are in charge of the White House and the, and the House and the Senate. And in terms of like the, you know, we're on our fourth continuing resolution, this stopgap measure that, fu- that funds the government, the fiscal year that, that we're, they're still arguing over began October 1st. <laughs> so we are, we are months into the new fiscal year, uh, fiscal year 18. Um, we don't have any sort of strategy for funding the government on next Friday. And also, because it's February, this is traditionally when the president submits his new budget for for fiscal year 2019, <laughs> and we are not even done f- with, you know, rounding out fiscal year 18. So, I mean, things have been, you know, irregular for a while in terms of, like, spending and so forth. But this the th- this seems to be rather extraordinary that, that we are in this stage as we're, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at pitchers and catchers reporting pretty soon, you know, <laughs> and, right. and, and like, uh, you know, it, it, there, there's no strategy, not just for fiscal 18, but like, I just can't imagine, you know, that there's that much for fiscal 19. I can't either. I, you know, John Cornyn, the, the Senate uh, Republican whip said last week that he expects at least two more short term spending bills will be needed. And he stressed at least I mean, we could be looking at 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 continuing resolutions through Memorial Day. I mean, that's when when you have to sit down and you kind of have to look at the the legislative calendar and the other things they're trying to do, and it it um, it takes a week or two recess sometimes to get these spending deals. In in the past, in, in the Obama years, it did, and that's the next big one is Memorial Day. I think um, <laughs> because they're not going to get a, a spending deal before I guess President's Day in a few weeks. They're, that's not going to happen. And then the next big one is Memorial. That's a long Actually, time. Or we, Easter, we, the Easter we, Yeah, we do have like right. a, a couple so weeks. So if they don't get one yeah. by Easter, right. then it's Memorial Day. And, you know, then we're just, you know, you're a stone's throw from the next fiscal year. Might as well, yeah, just kind of punt the whole thing, right? <laughs> but some of us, uh, some of us more cynical correspondents wonder if that's exactly what they're, they're going to do and try this again in the new fiscal year. So speaking of baseball. <laughs> Could smooth not, segue. Smooth segue there. Uh could not help but uh, notice that one of the guests for the State of the Union was uh, Jason Wirth, uh, former Washington National. He has not been re-signed. He, he played for the Nationals for seven years. Before that, he was at the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, won a World Series with them. 
Uh, Worth was there as the guest of Rep. Rodney Davis, who's a Republican from Illinois. Worth is also from Illinois. I mean, that's, there's the connection there. Uh, and he was there to talk about the farm bill uh, the uh, um, and the organic farming parts of the farm bill, which I found kind of fascinating. I mean, Worth is kind of a nutrition freak. I mean, mm-hmm. he you know he he's gluten free, and he you know he he really is. I mean, he, from most accounts, got the Nationals to really pay attention to right. what they were feeding their players. Uh, it, it, so hats off to him. Uh, we do have a farm bill that is supposed to be, that is expiring this year, that is theoretically supposed to be being written right now. Uh, maybe that's why Sonny Perdue was the designated survivor, uh, because it, and if nothing else, the farm bill would get written <laughs> as, if, as the designated survivor. Not one mention, though, of the farm bill in, in the State of the Union last night. Curious, uh, for sure. The president has talked about, you know, farmers being uh, part of his base. He talks about his base a lot. Uh, they certainly they certainly are. Rural America is definitely Trump country. Um, interesting. You're right. It's interesting that it wasn't in there. Uh, and the White House really has not talked about that. I mean, you know, I and others have asked them for months, you know, about their 2018 agenda. What, what do you think you can get done in, in a midterm election year? Um, you know what? What big thing do you want to try to do um, that uh, that that might be hard to do in a midterm year? That was welfare and entitlement reform, and that ain't happening. They right. don't even mention that anymore. They floated that for two, three weeks, and and then poof, it was gone after the holidays. It was a big Paul Ryan priority, not so big a Mitch McConnell priority. Aha! Uh-huh. So. Yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, the farm bill has has not really come up. Uh, when White House officials talk about 2018, mm-hmm. and it's your the deadline is coming. It's a huge piece of legislation. There are you know members on both sides of the aisle. That's that's a very important bill, um, and you know we haven't seen the president be able to pass major legislation uh, with um, with Democrats and Republicans, and and that's one where he's going to have to do that. It doesn't get a lot of attention. And, you know, that was a, the farm bill is something where he could have extended a hand to Democrats last night. He tried to do some of that, but but they, they opted not to do that. And the, the farm bill also is it, it has this it does have an urban component, too. I mean, there's a rural and urban, you know, sort of coalition, if, if you will, to, to comes together to pass these farm bills, because the food, you know, the, the nutritional assistance, the SNAP program, what used to be known as food stamps, is part of the farm bill. And then you have also have the subsidies and support systems for farmers in, in rural America. So there was always this rural-urban coalition. Um, and I realize this is a long way from Jason Worth, but I was, again, I was fascinated <laughs> by the fact that he was there to talk about the farm bill or hear about the farm bill. Um, and, and again, that, that would seem that you could get not just uh, rural Democrats, people like Colin Peterson, who's the... You know the ranking member on the agriculture committee in, in the House, uh, Democrat, conservative Democrat from Minnesota, but you could get a lot of people who are interested in like, okay, we want to make sure that the the SNAP program works as efficiently and and gets you know like assistance to people who need it in in you know across the country, and not not even a mention of it. Not one. Uh, and doing the farm bill, stressing the farm bill, saying it's a priority, having Republicans and Democrats over to the White House. The president loves to invite people into the Oval Office. You know, doing those kinds of things and also working staff to staff and, and, and members to, with the White House staff, with Mark Short and others, that's how relationships in this town 
start to get built, there just aren't a lot of relationships between the Trump White House and congressional Democrats. So one would think that the farm bill, for the reasons you just laid out, would be a place where the White House could work on something that both parties want to do, and it would give them a chance to, to start making inroads where they could, they, could, they could get a serious infrastructure bill together where they're going to need Democratic votes. It might even help with, the, with some immigration talks. Uh, but it's it's a back burner issue for them uh, for reasons that that maybe we will ask about later today. So speaking of front burner issues, uh, you 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 took a uh, an interesting tack with your you know some summation of of the uh, the address, and you you talked you looked at some of the big asks and some of the big points of emphasis in the speech, and then just sort of measured them up against like what are the chances that things might happen. So let's let's go through the and you hit three big things. And the the first one is immigration. He probably did spend in terms of policy the longest amount of time talking about immigration. Um it wasn't so much I mean he didn't really mention too much about you know other policy agenda items I mean we mentioned no, no mention of the farm bill things like that, but immigration was was there. This isn't a huge shock. Stephen Miller was a big part of the uh the the speechwriting team. He's the ch- President's chief policy advisor on the domestic front and a big immigration hardliner, um, and this we had seen previews of this before. But what what does he want to do with immigration, and what are the chances are? Let's go. Let's kind of go through this. You know, like these these three big items. Immigration is Stephen Miller's. Uh, it's his pet issue, and he led the speechwriting team. It was it was very interesting to me. You know, we got the text, and I went straight to the immigration section. Because we had, we've heard for a week that this was going to be a, a unifying speech. It was going to be a bipartisan speech. And then you get to the immigration section, and it is the same rhetoric that Stephen Miller and President Trump have been using for, what, two years, three years now, angers Democrats, the very Democrats they need to pass an immigration bill with that would inevitably have some of the things that Miller and Trump want. We actually have a, a short clip on that immigration that uh, that Ray is going to play just to just to get the president's voice in here. A single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Under our plan, we focus on the immediate family by limiting sponsorships to spouses and minor children. So, I mean, th- this, as, as we could hear sort of in the background, this elicited some boos and hisses from Democrats. Nancy Pelosi actually tried to, like, tamp that down, you know, a little bit, saying, like, hey, chill. Uh, but, you know, the again, the, as, as you said, the there wasn't a, a bunch of outreach so much as, like, laying down the markers. And this was also preceded by, you know, recognizing this this family who, who's, you know, members of their family had been killed by MS-13, sort of laying down the marker of, like, see what happens with immigration and then, like, oh, yeah, let's go to the table. So what, what are some of the dynamics that you're going to be looking for in the, in the coming, coming weeks on immigration? Well, I think the big thing to look for here is, you know, the, the White House has laid out some changes to the legal immigration process. Mm-hmm. I don't think Democrats are, are, are going for much of that. I'm looking to see if we get back to this notion of, of, of doing uh, the DACA program, legalizing that, maybe expanding it, and uh, some some added border security things, more agents, uh, more vehicles for those agents, uh, sensors, drones, those kinds of things, and the president's border wall. 
perhaps even full funding that they'll put in the trust fund that the White House has proposed. So you, you fix DACA, you enhance border security. Uh, the president gets to to ramp up his, his border wall project. Pass that sometime in the next few months and worry about the other items that, that the White House has laid out later. I just don't see how they're going to get the 60 votes on the big immigration bill right. because of last night. And that is consistent, the hardline rhetoric, bringing the family out. The president and the White House, sometimes they'll take a step forward on bipartisanship, and then they do something like that, and it really feels like two steps back. And you heard the boos in, in the chamber. That certainly did not sound like a bipartisan moment. It wasn't. Uh, John, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. We will uh, obviously be following this together <laughs> on our journey at Roll Call. That's right. Uh, but thanks so this much for... is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I am Jason Dick. I'm subbing for Bill Press. Bill Press is spelunking right now in rural Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joined by Kate... Ackley, she is our lobbying reporter at CQ Roll Call, and we're going to get into some issues of lobbying and how lobbyists did last year in that first year of swamp draining. But first, we're going to go back to Peter Ogburn and the full court press. Just a couple of other stories out there making news. Jason, I have to ask you, how is your Bitcoin portfolio looking these days? You know, uh, they were they were passing them out in Stat Hall last night, the, yeah. the, and and uh, and I wondered what had happened. Uh, you know, the, the, because they were just sort of passing them out like like it was like a Christmas parade or something <laughs> like that, or Mardi Gras beads. Well, here's the thing. That's uh, actually not true, but it sounded like fun. Yesterday, Facebook <laughs> made an announcement. Facebook's made a lot of announcements here in the past couple of days, but yesterday, the most recent announcement was they are going to ban ads promoting Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies, one of those things, I think I've finally reached a point in my life that I just, this is something I just don't understand. (laughs) I just don't get it. It's like derivatives. Yeah, it's like Snapchat. It's like Snapchat. I just don't get it. (laughs) It's not for me. I don't get it. So, and that's okay, but uh, <laughs> like I don't understand Bitcoin. I don't know what cryptocurrency exactly is, but apparently this is a thing. Uh, so uh, Facebook said that they were going to be banning ICOs, initial coin offerings, <laughs> <laughs> and that you're not going to see ads for it on Facebook anymore. I, I guess I, I hear people talk about Bitcoin all the time, but mm-hmm. I just don't fully understand it. Let- Libertarians love cryptocurrency. Sure, it's a, it's a way of getting around the banking system. It's a way of trading uh, and and financial transactions that basically avoid banking regulations. That's how I understand it. At least. We did this story last week. Uh, Fifty Cent, the rapper, mm-hmm. he agreed to do an album a couple of years ago, at, and he would be paid in Bitcoin, and he just forgot about it. <laughs> 
He was just because like it's not a real thing. I just assume it's not a real thing. But it turns out it was worth like eight million actual dollars. Hmm? And he just forgot. He was like, "Oh yeah, okay, I got that eight million sitting around." I, I that would be really nice if I could just sort of forget about an eight million dollar uh, yeah. ro- royalty check. What kind of life through. do you live right. where you just forget you got a you know eight right. mil laying around? Um, <laughs> Jason, I'm old enough to remember back in 2004 the Passion of the Christ and the sort of. Not scandal, but the controversy mm-hmm. around it. Well, it's coming back. Ooh, really? Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus Christ in that movie, mm-hmm. The Passion of the Christ, said that they are going to be doing a sequel. Now, I have some questions. Passion of the Christ too? Uh, yeah. Wait, it, are you are you sure you're not are you sure you're not thinking of the South Park Passion of the Jew <laughs> Is special? Apocalyptic or Apocalypto? Well, that was the Mayans. That was the that, that was the Passion of the Mayans. So here's here's <laughs> or the what, Aztecs or something like that. Yeah. Here's what Jim Caviezel said: <laughs> There are a lot of things I cannot say which will shock the audience about the movie. I won't tell you how he's going to go about it, talking about Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you this much. The film he's going to do is going to be the biggest film in history. It's that good. Now, I was confused because they also have a new movie, uh, a reboot of another movie coming out called Tomb Raider. This is not this, right? Like, that's, this is that, a different that's, movie. That's, yeah, that, that's uh, Alicia Vikander. That's the one. Yeah, and, and she's. You know, this was uh, Angelina Jolie's original that's role. That's it. It was a video game. Yes, right? it was based, based on, on a video, video game. game. Yes. Uh, there will be a sequel to Passion of the Christ. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but mm-hmm. I, I imagine they're going to go for the controversy again because it paid off so well for them last It was like a huge movie last time. But I, uh, what's next? Sorry. No, I mean, I mean, it's granted it's been a long time since I've been inside a church and, and, <laughs> Uh, but I, I mean, is it going to be like bouncing off? At, it'll be starting date next day. Are we just going to go right to Revelation? We're going to that could be that, that, that could be pretty. I would watch. Yeah, that I, I would watch. I would watch. <laughs> if, if we go to the Book of Revelation, because that that's like that, they would need Dennis Hopper to direct that thing. <laughs> I kind of feel like they wrapped the whole story of Christ up pretty well in the Passion of the Christ. So I don't know. Maybe there's more story to tell. Get your tickets now. Yeah. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Jason Dick. I'm subbing for Bill, uh, who is wandering across the desert for 40 days, I think. Uh, Hey, hey, you know, it's Passion of the Christ time here, you know, (laughs) The Bill Press Show. (laughs) I'm joined by CQ Roll Call's lobbying reporter, Kate Ackley. Kate can be followed on Twitter, at Cackley Z. K-A-C-K-L-E-Y-Z. I don't know if you need all the caps in there and so forth. It's, it's almost like a, the White House uh, the speech, you know, with all the emphasis and so forth. Kate, welcome to the Bill Pressure. Thanks for having me on. So uh, let's let's get into, you know, a, a little bit about, you know, not so much the State of the Union. We, we were talking about this at, at, at work, and we were expecting... A little bit more knock on the on the swamp uh, of which we are are creatures, but the you know the, there wasn't much of that. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of knocking of us uh, swamp creatures. There was no mention of the swamp in the uh, in the State of the Union. There wasn't any mention about special interests uh, or lobbying. So it seems like that's kind of a, a message of the campaign trail for President Trump. 
um, not something that he uh, he focused on at all in the in the State of the Union speech. We would now we did get a, a, a USA chant uh, toward toward the end, uh, usually reserved for you know the Olympics or college basketball games and so forth. Uh, but hey, you know cool people got excited uh i i, I get that uh but usually that is a drain the swamp chant uh at, at at president trump's campaign rallies now you uh are a specialist in studying the swamp <laughs> in particular <laughs> uh because you know the lobbying world inside out uh and you spent a a great deal of your uh, your work life for the last couple of weeks sifting through uh, lobbying disclosure forms for the fourth quarter, adding up what happened last year. Uh, this was, we, we, were, we were wondering what was going to happen to the swamp, uh, to, to K Street, to associations. And, and again, when, when we're talking about the swamp, we're not just talking about these sort of white shoe lobbying firms. We're talking about, you know, small snack food associations and so forth. Uh, everybody lobbies, you know, who, who comes and, and pushes a, a point uh, in, in Congress. What were some of the sort of highlights that you learned about the state of lobbying and the, the state of the swamp, if you will, in the first year of Donald Trump's presidency? Yeah, the first year of Trump's presidency was good for the swamp. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, lobbying revenue was was up over 2016. Um, we looked at the uh, the bump, though, in 2009, uh, which was uh, Barack Obama's first year in office. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you look at 2009 versus 2017, the bump that that lobbyists got for the, you know, sort of the um Obama presidency was bigger. Mm -hmm. um, it was about the same amount of money spent in both years, uh, but you would expect, you know, that it would have been for inflation or whatever, that it would have been a little mm -hmm. bit more in 2017. Um, but but clearly 2017 was a huge year uh, for, for K Street, for the lobbying sector. And I think the main thing driving that was the tax overhaul, mm -hmm. which, uh, which Republicans got across the finish line uh, in the end of the year, and it was enacted in December. Um, that that was a huge boon for basically any special interest, uh, no matter what your position was on the tax bill. Uh, you, everybody had a stake in it. Everybody was lobbying on it in some way. Most of the business community was for it. Um, there were some, you know, concerns uh, here and there, uh, and certainly some uh, folks in the housing sector, uh, you know, opposed certainly the uh, the initial uh, bill that came out of the House. But by and large, corporate America was was hugely for the tax overhaul. And, you know, this got a relatively late start in the legislative year. I mean, like they, they waited until they had sort of exhausted themselves on health care, their health care efforts uh, in Congress. Uh, they got off to a relatively slow start, too, you know, with budget season and different legislative items. So they didn't really start this process on on debating taxes and this tax overhaul until the fall um and so it, it's kind of remarkable that they had like such a huge boon in it only, with only a, a couple of months to work with because the last big tax overhaul i mean they 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 spread it out over years in in the 80s right and i think a lot of people were skeptical that when you got into the late summer and there wasn't really a tax bill and there was a lot of talk from republicans that you know we're going to get this thing passed um, you know, there was a lot of skepticism that that was even possible. Um, I think, you know, there, there were discussions going on earlier in the year 
And one of the one of the sort of signature pieces of uh, what the House Republicans really wanted to do initially was this border adjustment tax. And there was just a, the, bat. A, the, bat. the bat. There, <laughs> there was a huge um, uproar against the bat from a couple of really important uh, areas, in, including um, groups that uh, that are funded by the Koch brothers, Charles mm-hmm. and David Koch, um, who obviously are the uh, the hate big, taxes. Hate them. The big conservative um, uh, political, you know, uh, 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 financial backers. Uh, they did not like the bat. Their their whole organization, including their company, Coke Industries, lobbied against the, the concept of the bat. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you also had the retail industry just went ballistic against the bat. They said it was going to, to do away with, uh, with their, you know, kill their industry. So you had these really aggressive lobbying campaigns basically in the second quarter of last year mm-hmm. just taking off and, and going against the bat, which the, the proponents of the bat included Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady of Texas, um, and Speaker Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had one lobbyist tell me, you know, uh, basically uh, lobbying against the bat, you kind of had to tell Paul Ryan that his baby was ugly. <laughs> so, <laughs> it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode. That's so, an ugly baby. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a kind of an awkward situation, but they but they did it. The, mm-hmm. the Coke Network did it. And uh, the retailers, and obviously there were other stakeholders that that were maybe a little bit quieter mm-hmm. in uh, in calling Paul Ryan's baby ugly, but still making sure that their voices were heard. And and part of that, part of the reason that the, I mean, it's not just a philosophical thing with with the Coke, you know, industries and so forth, and and the retailers. It was the if they're importing a, I don't know, say a washing machine, since those have been in the news late, lately. I mean, th- there there would be a a tax levied on something that was manufactured in South Korea or, or in Vietnam that they would have to pass on to consumers, right? I mean, and that, and that was, so it was a, it was a bottom line thing for the Cokes as well as a philosophical thing. Yeah, I think the the assessment from uh, outside observers was that, yes, it would benefit the Coke industry bottom line not to have the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, people in the company certainly made the argument that, that it was a philosophical uh, decision and that maybe the bat would that you know they they wouldn't necessarily take a huge hit. Uh, the the retail industry though made no secret and mm-hmm. it was purely a bottom line argument. You know retail lobbyists were saying this will kill our industry or or will will you know hurt us so bad. Um, so you had those those very strong voices early on saying we will not be for a tax overhaul if the bat is in it, and you saw. The bat was scrapped, and those groups got behind it. Um, and I think in the fourth quarter, which was sort of the last three months of the year, when uh, when the um, when the tax overhaul was really moving quickly, um, you saw a, a huge boost of of energy on behalf of that bill mm-hmm. uh, from those same groups, the Coke Network. The retailers and you know manufacturers and a whole bunch of other um, uh, industries, but you know you you saw uh, lawmakers you know they really felt Republican lawmakers felt that if they didn't pass that tax bill, their donors and I think you know the Charles and David Cokes are a good example that their donors would pack up mm-hmm. and just just say we're not you know you guys can't do anything you can't pass the the repeal and replacement of Obamacare you if you can't get the tax bill done then we're done 
Um, and and since you, lobbyists also tend to bundle donations for candidates, particularly at the presidential level, but also at the congressional level, these lobbyists were able to uh, carry that message to them almost directly. Well, I mean, <laughs> I remember uh, Senator Lindsey Graham saying, and I think there were some House Republicans that also said, you know, our message, the message we're getting from our donors is if we don't pass a tax overhaul, they're going to stop giving giving us checks. So it was it was pretty straightforward. It wasn't like we had to, you know, uncover some sort of secret plot. Uh, this is what lawmakers were, <laughs> were telling, telling us in, in the Capitol, <laughs> in the subway. <laughs> and and certainly I spoke with uh, Tim Phillips uh, last year who runs Americans for Prosperity, which is one of the better known uh, Coke backed groups. And he agreed that, you know, if Republicans couldn't get going on that tax bill, that it was going to be something that would that would lead donors to feel disheartened Mm -hmm. and also voters. I think there was a sense that, you know, Republican voters, there were a lot of people, um, you know, in the Republican Party who voted for President Trump. Uh, Maybe they didn't love President Trump or, Mm -hmm. or what he stood for, but they voted for him with the expectation that uh, that their taxes would get lowered. Now, one of the interesting things that the the way the tax bill eventually evolved and and was then enacted, one point five trillion dollar cost to to the treasury that was just sort of like added on, dolloped on to the to the budget deficit. There wasn't one mention of the deficit (laughs) in the president's State of the Union last night. Uh, The president also mischaracterized it as the largest tax cut in in history. Uh, it, I think most fact checkers have settled on this that around the seventh or eighth largest uh, tax cut, you know, like bill. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at, but it, it is it is small. The going back to the bat, the border adjustment tax, uh, if that if they would have been able to use that, it would have been a possibly the largest. But by taking that away, they didn't just, you know, you know, relieve a, a pressure point that the retailers and the Cokes were, were upset about, but they also took away a gigantic source of revenue. Some of the estimates were as, were as much as like $5 trillion, a $5 trillion tax cut that would have been offset partially by this by this BAT tax. So yeah, they, they but- really kind of, you know, they, they really marginalized their, what they were able to do by taking that away. Well, and I think also having to do it on reconciliation, the budget reconciliation process. This is what, you know, enables them to not have to worry about filibusters. Exactly. They were able to pass it in the Senate with just a simple majority as opposed to that 60 vote threshold. Um, Again, I think what came out of the House was a little bit more of a of a overhaul mm-hmm. you know whereas in order to get it through there the were gonna senate there going to be three three tax brackets right and, and initially with the senate bill they they wanted to do three tax brackets and and this huge tax cut and they, and they I think we're back at 7 now they, or something like that they, <laughs> we're they, back at where they, we were <laughs> they were they were getting at some of the the things that republicans have long wanted to you know sort of fundamentally change but in the senate uh, you know, in part because of those the rules that, on the budget process, they had to scale that back. Um, but absolutely, the the sort of doing away with the border adjustment tax idea took a huge pay for mm-hmm. out of Republican hands, so that you know they they just couldn't do maybe as big uh, and as broad of a of an overhaul as they wanted. Now, so 
So taxes, obviously a huge amount of lobbying activity with that. Some of the other uh, sectors that, that have, have let's, let's run down a couple of them just off the you know, top of your head. So health care, you know, like this was a big part of the legislative agenda last year. The Republicans, uh, you know, took a, took a couple of runs at the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they tried to uh, repeal it, uh, and, and they, they, they did manage to repeal the penalty on the individual mandate. They didn't actually kill the individual mandate, but they killed the penalty on it. Uh, in, in as part of their tax bill, but healthcare just was everywhere for for several months. What what was the health lobbying sector? What what happened with them? Yeah, absolutely. The healthcare sector is always a huge uh, driver of business in the lobbying world. And I mean, as you recall, during that uh, repeal and replace debate on Capitol Hill, you know, there, there was basically no um, health uh, industry group that was really for. The overhaul. I mean, right. you had a lot of, of opponents from the hospitals, the doctors, um, uh, you AARP, know, a, a lot, exactly. You know, Planned Parenthood. I mean, every every major lobbying yes. you know, association. They, they, and I think that that maybe was not the entire reason that that failed. Uh, you had obviously a very mobilized grassroots uh, against the the repeal and replace of Obamacare, but it certainly didn't help Republicans that all of these. Uh, you know, big lobbying interests were against what their what their plan was. And how much did they spend in in, in general? I mean, like you I mean, they, we saw a lot of letters, but things just seemed to happen so fast that did they have time to marshal their forces for campaigns, or was it more on the ground? lobbying for the AMA and, and America's health plans and so forth? It was definitely both. And what uh, one thing that lobbying disclosures, the federal lobbying disclosures, do not necessarily reflect. They're not. It's not required that people, uh, organizations and lobbyists, include what they're spending to mobilize the grassroots. That's mm-hmm. something that, you know, is public disclosure, so it's hard to know. But we can definitely say from reporting and anecdotally, that, uh, you know, doctors and other medical stakeholders were, and also just, you know, grassroots activists were mm-hmm. busy uh, calling their lawmakers. Uh, I think some phone lines got shut down. There, there, was, a, there was a huge mobilization, uh, both from sort of the paid advocacy world, as well as just people watching the news and, and getting on Facebook and, and getting amped up about, uh, you know, calling their, their lawmakers. Um, the the spending again was uh, you know kind of similar to what it was in two thousand nine when they had a busy agenda on uh, you know financial services and 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 what became Obamacare the following year, um, it, so you know basically the the reportable lobbying industry is about four billion dollars. There was about four billion dollars spent um, and reported in in uh, what you know lobbyists do. Uh, to influence things here in in Washington. Um, The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, you know, spends the most. Mm -hmm. Last year, I think they reported spending about $80 million. Um, That includes their grassroots and some of their stuff. They just lump that in because that's what they like to do. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers, which is the drug industry lobby, was also a top spender. Um, I think it was something like $24 million for the year, $20 million. Um, and, and for the for some of the healthcare stuff, was pharma what, was it for or against, or do you, do you have to tell on on these? You don't have to tell. So you'd have to go back and look mm-hmm. at what was the messaging that they were putting out. And and I think pharma is going to be an interesting uh, group to watch this year. Obviously, they're they're you know pharma the the drug industry 
um, is always a big spender mm-hmm. um, in uh, on federal lobbying as well as you know at the states and all that. They've got a number of issues. They've been on the hot on the hot seat with the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. not to mention you know uh, Obamacare and things like that that they've been um, involved in. You know, President Trump has said as a candidate and then also last night in the State of the Union that, you know, he is going to work to lower uh, drug prices in America. And he said, you know, it's going to happen. And and that was... He has a former pharmaceutical executive as his HHS secretary, (laughs) too. So, I mean, this could conceivably happen. Well, you saw Democrats, actually, who were mostly just sitting there looking, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with scowls on their faces for most of the speech... Uh, you saw some uh, applauding mm-hmm. that idea. I think a few even maybe stood up. Um, so there, there is a bipartisan interest in mm-hmm. in this idea of lowering drug prices. Uh, you know, prescription drug prices for Americans. It's obviously a complicated thing because you know you talk to pharmaceutical industry lobbyists, and they can make a really credible case that. Mm-hmm. You know, their companies are doing a lot of research and development to find these cures and these therapies for um, complex diseases and that, you know, they have to be able to 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 make a profit on that. So, it, it you know, there's a balance that they'll have to figure out. But but there's no question that Trump said that was going to be a priority this year. And, and it looked like he got some support from Democrats. Um, yeah, I'm, I was sort of I've been fascinated by this, this this idea that, you know, that he's going to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Obviously, um, older Americans are a little bit more inclined towards support for for Donald Trump. Uh, most older Americans do have a, quite a few prescriptions that, they, that need to be filled. Um, and Medicare doesn't always pay for for everything. So but the thing that, I mean, he also told us that he the, the wealthy were going to we're going to do very, very poorly in the tax bill. <laughs> so, I mean, as this, what are you going to be looking for um, in, in terms of as a, as a lobbying reporter? What, what are some of the things that you might look for in the coming year as this picks up some steam, perhaps legislatively, uh, that would signal to you where things may go, like where the winds may be? be blowing for well, for or against. Yeah, I think definitely I will and I think the the drug industry and other organizations are totally going to be taking their cues from Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think that God help them. That's <laughs> what, <laughs> that, I've, I've been trying to figure it out for years, <laughs> the cues. <laughs> well, and it's going to be a really difficult year to get anything sort of big done. Mm-hmm. But imagine, I mean you you I think you were talking about this in the last hour. There is a sense that Wait, you were listening. That Republic. <laughs> I was over there in the in the little waiting room. I thought it was just family and friends who <laughs> are listening to my shows. Are we but, on air? <laughs> but there is a sense that you know. I think a lot of Republicans are saying, you know, they're they're worried they're going to lose control of the mm-hmm. House of Representatives, and that's a legitimate worry. I think of 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 all the you know the Senate would be a lot harder for for Democrats to take back. Um, in the November elections, but the House is, is it seems truly in play. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they feel some sense of pressure to do something in a bipartisan way. I mean, it, that may just be talk right now, but you, you hear, and and Trump mentioned this last night, infrastructure, they've got this, this idea of lowering cost of prescription drugs, whatever that means. Um, but those are a couple of things that I think voters would actually... Um, you know, sort of support. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it it would be a way, especially for Republicans to say, you know, we can govern, we can work with Democrats, you know, give us another another couple of years to, to run the House.
One of the things that I've been fascinated pivoting to another issue is, I mean, immigration is, I mean, it has reached another boiling point. We see these periodically uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, I, I happen to be married to a woman who covered the immigration debate for years and years and years, uh, Fawn Johnson. And one of the things that she thought was just sort of fascinating about it was that that regardless of, of how the passions that were brought up by this, I mean, and, it's, and they get into fundamental questions of who we are as Americans, um, there wasn't a lot of lobbying behind it. And so the, for Congress, I mean, Congress really has to be like given a shove uh, to address immigration because aside from some groups like like FAIR or CASA and so forth, I mean, like there there isn't a big lobbying push necessarily to do immigration. Is that, do you think that that could change? Could groups like the Chamber and the Koch brothers, you know, Koch Network say, actually, we really do need to deal with this now? Is that is that maybe on the agenda? Well, the business community has long wanted a big immigration overhaul. The business community obviously does not want to see uh, fewer immigrants coming in. And that's an area, that's a real tension point, I think, generally, um, between the business community and the Trump administration. I mean, they might be together on taxes and some of these other things. That uh, that and trade are, are where you see um, sort of business lobbyists kind of uh, approaching the administration with these kid gloves. And, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to attack, um, you know, the administration because they're trying to, you know, play nice on the deregulatory agenda and, and certainly the tax overhaul and things like that. But but I, I mean, the business community would love to do uh, a, a big picture immigration overhaul. Um, and I think what it speaks to is really the, the transformation in the Republican Party from being kind of the chamber of commerce uh, you know, pro-business Country party type mm-hmm. Republicans, right? to, to this grassroots, you know, populist. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's- and and one, one of the things that I've, I've, again, not to hammer too much on the immigration debate, but one of the things that I saw was fascinating was, you know, Republicans backed by the Chamber of Commerce typically wanted some sort of solution for, you know, you know, so they could bring immigrants in and fill unfilled jobs. Democrats uh, like typically, you know, fill the ranks of unions, unions uh, like the AFL-CIO back, you know, like in the early 2000s kind of pushed against a lot of these immigration bills because they didn't want an influx of of. Uh, of cheap labor and so forth, which is one of the one of the lines that like Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller, the, uh, the Trump administration's domestic policy advisor and the president himself has said, like, we don't want all this cheap labor flooding. Is it is it just getting too confusing almost to follow who who like what constituency is lined up with what party? Any longer? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, because there there has been a blurring of lines. And there were some things that Trump said last night in the State of the Union that you would have expected, you know, to hear from a Democrat, even though obviously Democrats were were very um, not, you know, they were not wooed by by his speech. But there there is certainly a blurring of lines. Trade and immigration are the two main areas where where Trump speaks much more like a populist. You you could maybe hear Elizabeth Warren saying uh, some of the same things. So it's uh, or Bernie Sanders. Right. Mm Um, Sherrod Brown, another potential presidential contender from Ohio, you know, who cheered on the tariffs on the washing machines last week. I mean, that's like a weird, you know, kind of moment for us. It's like, wow, like this is getting confusing following all these different things. All right. Well, Kate, thank you so much for dropping in early uh, on, on a Wednesday morning, the day after the State of the Union. I know you must have been up late watching it every moment of the of the State of the Union. And I watched the response. <laughs> and all, all 10, all 10 responses from the Democrats. Thanks you can for follow, having me. Thank on. you. You can follow Kate at Cackley Z. Uh, she is our live reporter at Roll Call. 
And uh, coming up in the next half hour, we're going to be talking to Humberto Sanchez from the Nevada Independent. We're going to look at politics from the West Coast angle. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Jason Dick. I'm the leadership editor at Roll Call. And in this half hour, uh, I am joined in studio. Peter Ogburn has moved back in. He's sidled back into the studio. Like it or not, here I am. <laughs> here I am. And we're joined by Humberto Sanchez, who is the Washington correspondent for the Nevada Independent. You can follow him on Twitter at hsanchez128. Humberto, welcome to The Bill Press Show. Thanks for having me, Jason. I should mention that Bill right now is hiking around the Nevada test site. Uh, little <laughs> known fact. He is, this is one of the reasons we wanted you on the show, uh, because when Bill is apprehended by Army Rangers and kept in Yucca Mountain, we wanted to know what we should do. Yeah. How do we get him out? <laughs> That may not be true, but it's just a good <laughs> opening. So, uh, Humberto, you're you have been uh, I won't say you're old, uh, you know, <laughs> but but you have been covering Washington for quite some time, and you started it, you know, and and you know you've covered it from the trade angle at the, at the bond buyer. Uh, you have worked. We worked together at Congress Daily and then National Journal Daily as it became. And we've worked together at Roll Call. Uh, you have done. Um, you know, profile work, uh, co- profiling members of Congress. And and now you're working at the Nevada Independent. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Nevada Independent and your role as Washington correspondent there. Well, the Nevada Independent is a, a nonprofit uh, website that was started by John Ralston, who's kind of a legendary uh, Nevada... Guru Nevada politics that, guy. That, that's right. And uh, it's been around. It, they celebrated their first anniversary this January... Um, and I began like the Trump administration <laughs> <laughs> launched simultaneously. They so it has also been the most successful website ever launched in the history, in the history. of websites. Yeah, they're following the trend of the Trump administration. It's up there. It's up there. <laughs> At least in Clark County. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they have they have a group of about six reporters there uh, that uh, follow the state legislature, mm-hmm. the local politics, uh, national politics. And uh, I started there about a month ago mm-hmm. uh, to to be their Washington correspondent and follow the delegation here. And and this was enabled, you know, partially by the implosion of the news, newspaper industry, um, you know, in, in Nevada, the Las Vegas Review Journal and the Las Vegas Sun, you know, sort of had been cut back, cut back, cut back, cut back. Uh, and Ralston saw an opening, you know, that, that they were not covering local politics in the way that he thought the Nevada, with in all of its rich weirdness, and I can say that <laughs> as an Arizonan, uh, uh, deserved. That's right. Uh, Sheldon Nielsen bought the, the, one, the paper. A lot of people the, left. The because, Review Journal. That's right. right yeah. the, because of that fact. And, uh, yeah, and Ralston, exactly. He, he values providing news. He sees an old newspaper man and, mm-hmm. uh, and saw an opportunity and, and is looking to looking – to, Inform voters and capitalize on it at the same time. One one thing, and, and I promise we'll actually get into talking about politics in a second <laughs> here. But one of the things I noticed uh, in in uh, when I went to the Nevada caucuses in 2016, uh, I actually got a tour of the Review Journal's uh, offices and and the plant. The printing plant plant is right there. It's it's just right off of downtown 
Las Vegas, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is the older part of town. This is where the El Cortez was, which is Bugsy Siegel's first hotel and casino. And uh, and the thing that struck me was that this is way too much real estate for, for what they're doing. I mean, it was just this gigantic facility and concrete, brutalist architecture. And they had this relatively small staff, and the printing presses were just these huge, gigantic rolls, and, and they were you know they were printing almost every newspaper in the state because right. they just the press runs were lower and lower. So, uh, and and it is striking to see that uh, uh, that Ralston could come you know kind of step into the the void you know and and do this. So so let's let's get into Nevada politics. Uh, Nevada politics for years and years and years was overshadowed by Harry Reid, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, who retired in t- in 2016. You covered him for years, uh, and he uh, is came. He was as advertised. He was he actually was a crusty guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, he was awkward and starchy. Uh, but one of his lasting his parting sort of legacies uh, was not so much what he did in in the Senate, but what he did in Nevada, which went uh, completely against trends in 2016. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he. Was uh, he had a really close run, re-election run at that time. He was uh, uh, way underwater in the polls, and uh, one of the ways he saw out of that was to reach out to the Latino Latino community. Um, he uh, it, it was almost the model for what Obama did the following two years for mm-hmm. uh, to get reelected. I'm talking about 2010. I'm sorry, that's right. In 2010, when he beat Sharon Angle, that, yeah, when, that's when, exactly yeah. right. And uh, and so yeah, he kind of started this entire. Um, Outreach by the Democratic Party, which which spread far and wide. I mean, people looked at uh, uh, Michael Bennett from Colorado was very interested in that outreach, uh, and uh, as was the president. And so it, it, he was very prescient, and he he saw it before a lot of other people saw it. It's so funny you mentioned like his reputation in the Senate, which I don't think was necessarily appreciated at the time. Certainly by Democrats, I think that he did a lot of things that Democrats frowned upon at the time and he didn't really unite the party the way that we had wanted him to but then as we talk about in hindsight you look at what happened in nevada that's sort of where we are politically now Mm -hmm. right like we're having to play democrats i should say we me uh are playing catch up and being like we had our eye on this White House presidential politics thing for so long and that was the wrong place to be looking harry reid saw where we needed to be and like you, you guys have both pointed out, sort of uh, provided a guide map for how to do this across the country. Right. And that's really what's important. And so I think he was way ahead of his time on that. And I think a lot of Democrats, me included, didn't give him the credit he deserved at the time. I mean, it, it is sort of fascinating because I remember when they started the Nevada caucuses and it was just it was kind of a punchline. Like, you know, right. There was Iowa, New Hampshire, which had been doing it since. Uh, well, I, I think that's Mel Gibson's next movie after, <laughs> yeah, right. after the sequel. Right, to, right, right. Uh, Passion of the Christ. That'll be the, uh, you know, the Nevada or the Iowa, New Hampshire caucuses. Uh, yes. The Passion of Iowa. Yes. Uh, but but uh, and then and South Carolina, these are all been, you know, part of the political like life blood you know for years and then nevada (laughs) and it was just weird like this is one of the big four reed though knew what it was it was an opportunity to register democrats and to keep tabs on them and get them out to the polls and it took a while but you know it, it by the time 2016 rolled around uh, you know, it, it Nevada in in a lot of ways it had a lot of things that we look upon just as 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 taken for granted in politics. Now there's an urban rural divide. 
um, and and they have to figure out how to to keep everybody happy, and and there it seems to be that they are you know it, it's a it's a it's a laboratory as as we're as we're as we see it you know kind of developing in front of our eyes. It's also uh, got a lot of federal land. It's got these these western issues, but also the, this uh, urban these urban issues, as you say. Uh, it's a really fascinating state. So uh, we have a, let's start like sort of at the top. We have a a, a governor's race. Uh, Brian Sandoval, who's the very popular Nevada governor, a moderate. He's close to Reed. Uh, Reed even you know sort of favored Sandoval over his own son, <laughs> Famous, famously uh, yeah. in in uh, gubernatorial politics. Uh, sorry, Roy. Uh, you know, uh, but Sandoval is term limited. He's he he is leaving. Uh, there's and there's also a Senate race. Uh, and and let's talk a little bit about that Senate race because it could be key to who holds the majority uh, next year. That's right. Uh, and so we have Senator Heller, who's the incumbent, Senator Dean Heller. Uh, who is the 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 dean for no pun intended of the of the delegation? He's uh-huh. been there since uh, I believe eleven when he was uh, right. uh, he took appointed. John yeah John Ensign's uh, place uh, in the uh, when when Ensign resigned. Um, and uh, so he'll be uh, Jackie Rosen is uh, his uh, likely his opponent. He, mm-hmm. First first Heller has to do to uh, win a, a primary against. Uh, Incumbent or uh, perennial. That's right. He almost seems like an incumbent. He's run for so many, so many offices. <laughs> incumbent uh, candidate, <laughs> Danny, Danny Tarkanian. And this is the Danny Tarkanian has, uh, as, as Huberta points out, has has run for. He he does seem to run every cycle, either for a Senate or a House uh, position. He ran against Jackie Rosen Correct. actually for the uh, sort of uh, suburban Las Vegas Henderson uh, based uh, third district seat. Jackie Rosen has is not even served a full term yet, and and saw you know that like this is a good opportunity because Dean Heller is the is is arguably the most vulnerable Senate uh, Republican senator. Yeah, after Flake left, he was the he 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 popped to the top of the list. Right, right, right up there. And and we should note too that I mean Heller you know has 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 run. Uh, several statewide races. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he was the Secretary of That's State right. before he was the, the senator, so he is not an unknown quantity. Uh, but he he won uh, in in 2012. Uh, it, he he beat Shelley Berkeley, who was a Las Vegas based uh, congresswoman, who was a, a particularly flawed candidate. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and did not win in convincing fashion. That's so right. this is so. What are you watching? You know, as as you observe Heller, like what what are some of the moves that he's making to both, you know, run against Tarkanian and also set himself up for a, a probably a tough general race. Therein lies the dilemma because you can't do one without offending the other. So he he uh, right now he's embracing the uh, the Trump administration. He's really doubling down on the on the tax bill. He was the right there law. on the aisle last night. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was he was like, hey, pay attention to me, Mr. Trump. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I, I have to go back and look, but I'm not sure if he got a handshake he wanted because I think that would have. Uh, you would have seen that in in, uh, in, in advertisements for uh, for his campaign, but uh, the uh, so so right now, right, he's in can- he's in primary mode. He's looking to to uh, show the base that you know he's won with Trump. Uh, he uh, his his main uh, legislative victory has been this tax bill. He's mm-hmm. on the finance committee. He, he I think at one point at some press conference said he'd helped write it. Which yeah. is, no, he did. Yeah. He yeah. did. I mean, it's it's just like one of those things. It's so hard to be a Republican these days because you've got to say a bunch of different things at once, right? And yeah. like he did, he came out and was just like, "Hey, hey I wrote it." 
And like nobody really wants to put themselves out there that way right. these days. He's he's the exception though, yeah. especially on this. And so that's going to be a really interesting to watch how people, uh, how well the tax bi- the bi- bill is doing uh, will be. A, that'll be a barometer for, yeah. for for that. And and also Nevada. So Nevada would be theoretically one of the states that would people would be at a minimum sort of held harmless because there is no state income tax right. in, in Nevada. So people don't you know they don't write off like onerous like state and local taxes like they do in say like New York or New Jersey or Washington DC <laughs> uh and and like they're, so they're not able to cut their their federal tax bill by writing that kind of stuff off property taxes are still not that high i mean housing is relatively affordable that's right so th- this might be sort of a test case for w- whether you can sell like the sell it as you know hey these all these casino magnets are <laughs> paying less money uh and in in uh, corporate income taxes and, and the hope being that they hire more people Right. Or, or invest more in their casinos, which didn't seem to be a huge problem in Vegas. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, uh, I mean, on my background, I mean, I, I have, uh, I remember when Vegas. I mean, I, I grew up growing up in Arizona. My grandfather lived in Las Vegas the last twenty years of his life. Uh, he worked at the Sands. Uh, okay. Like, I, I, don't, I, I have yet to ask Ruben Kiwen if he worked with with Ruben Kiwen's dad at the Sands. <laughs> That's I think, right. that, I think there was a he was there probably before then. Uh, but Ruben Kiwan is the fourth district congressman uh, who is not running for re-election. We'll get to him in a moment. Uh, but Nevada really was, uh, I mean, it, it was not what it is today. Uh, I mean, Ve- Vegas was a, a, a small city, uh, and it didn't look the, all that different from what Laughlin, Nevada looks mm-hmm. like now. You know, it's just like a, there's, a, there's a, a, a nearby body of water and a bunch of tall buildings, and that was sort of it. Now it's this megalopolis, um, and and it's just sort of, I mean, it's kind of an amazing 21st century city. <laughs> and uh, going back to Senator Heller, the uh, so he's got this 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 uh, he's, he has to embrace the president mm-hmm. in in the primary, but at the same time, he has to not alienate the general elect the the general public. Or non-Trump supporters because Trump only won the state by two points. Or I'm sorry, no, he, he lost. Yeah, he lost. Lost it, it yeah, by two lost, two points. Yeah. And so it, it, it's a conundrum for me. It's, it's a bit, some people have said it's, it's impossible right. to do. To balance, yeah. Because, I mean, you have this, I mean, again, 90% of the population or something like that is in Clark County, which is Las Vegas and, and, and Southern Nevada. There's another clump of people up in Reno, right. or another clump, small, clump, smaller clump of people in Carson City. And then there's uh, Elko up in the, in the northern. These are the basically the population centers, and then you just it's really like the American outback. Mm-hmm. But this mm-hmm. the second district, you know, is is a congressional district, you know, that makes up the the vast sort of part of the non Vegas part that's represented by Mark Amaday. He he doesn't have much of a race though, does he? He's he's relatively s- safe. Um, he he's a really funny guy. I've, he's I've, an interesting dude. I've enjoyed covering him. Uh, he did not attend the State of the Union. He was oh, interesting. He, he uh, <laughs> didn't make a big deal out of it, though. Obviously, right? no, it wasn't yeah. for political reasons at all. He 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 likes to spend time as much time as he can in the district. He mm-hmm. does a lot of business there. He actually uh, <laughs> he actually uh, raffled off his ticket amongst his staff. <laughs> because there was no guest that, that wanted to go or he didn't reach out to guests. Hell yeah. Or it was just too hard to get there from Elko. <laughs> <laughs> He's also skipping the retreat. Ah. Uh, he, uh, so he, he really, uh, is putting a lot of his resources, his time resources back in the district. And mm-hmm. this is, uh, this is the, kind of the second time he did this during the shutdown. 
he uh, he had a he wasn't there for the vote, hmm. uh, but he he said that he had a, a medical appointment he had to keep uh, on that Monday, and he was he was scheduled to come back. Had, had there, to wash his hair. Had there no been, <laughs> had there been no deal on, uh-huh. on on he would have been back Tuesday uh, for work, but he ended up staying in the, in the district. But it was uh, he's he's got a real YOLO attitude, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Uh, which, which evinces, you know, he's probably pretty safe. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, I don't even, is there even a Democrat? There they is. Can, there, there is, okay. A, a Democrat, no. There, he's, he's facing a primary okay. challenger from Sharon Engel. Okay. Oh, that's wow. right. Right. All right. So Everything that's old is new again. Yes. My gosh. It's a time is a flat circle. Yeah. Apparently so. It's like a chessboard that uh, <laughs> that Nevada bench. So, so we've got um, the you know so, so that's the second district, and you know so the the real action will be between Engel and, and Amade. Uh, the first district is is Dina Titus, right. um, who is uh, can only be described as a hoot. I think uh, you know like and she she's got this very thick Georgia accent. Also yeah. acceptable, a hoot uh, and a holler. A hoot and a holler. <laughs> she's a hoot and a holler. <laughs> Um, you know, she she speaks her mind. She pissed off Reed, yep. you know, by by running for the first district seat, which is more heavily Democratic. When he wanted her to run initially in the third district uh, to take on, I think John Porter back in the day or I think something. You're like right. That, you know, um, it's because it's more of a swing district. Uh, she she wanted to run for the first district when Berkeley ran for the Senate uh, against, against Heller. And and they it's not that they're on the outs. Uh, it's probably it's easy to get on Harry Reid's bad side. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> just ask John Ross. Right, uh, but um, but in general, she doesn't face much of a of a, a race, though. Right? No. Okay. No. Uh, I can't remember the the woman that's running. One of the women that was running against her, I think, is an, also another perennial candidate. Okay. So so that leaves two two more seats there, and they are a little swingier. Uh, so let, let's start with Jackie Rosen's seat, the third district. This is Joe Hexel district. That's right. It's you know it's Henderson where Reed lives, uh, and uh, and and it's more suburban. There's mm-hmm. a little bit. There are some parts of Vegas, but it is it's really sort of the almost like the collar you know sort of areas of of Vegas. Who's who, is, is that? Are we going to see a pretty close race there? You know, everyone, all the punditry says that uh, the Democrats should hold those seats. They do. They lean Democratic. Mm-hmm. However, you're going to see an interesting race in that seat with with Stephen Horsford coming back mm-hmm. and Crescent Hardy coming back. Oh, is this the fourth or the third? The uh, that's the yeah, fourth. I'm sorry. Fourth, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. The, so yeah. the third. Oh, who is in the third again? <laughs> <laughs> this is the, among the swingers. Well, let, well, let's pivot to the fourth then. Okay. Right, real quick. So, so the fourth district. Ruben Keewen, uh was you know he he is serving his first term. He's a freshman uh, Democrat. This uh, was Crescent Hardy's seat uh, after the 2014 election, and Steve Horsford, as you mentioned, was a Democrat who won it in 2012. Nevada got a new seat, and that was they Horsford filled the seat, and then sort of lost weirdly and unexpectedly in That's in, right. in, in, in 2014. It was like what? I mean, because it's it's kind of a Democratic district. This uh-huh. is North Las Vegas. Uh, it, it's a it's. Uh, heavily minority. It's a minority heavy. It's like uh, district and Horsford seemed like he could have had the <laughs> the uh, uh, seat as long as he wanted. But Hardy won it, and then Hardy, you know, was he got swept out in 2016 That's right. uh, by Reuben Kewen. Kewen was sort of the anointed one by Reed. That's right. Uh, and then got into trouble for touching a lady's knees uh, <laughs> repeatedly uh, and 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 kind of caught up in in a sexual harassment sort of thing. He's Serving out his term, but not running for re-election. Uh, so, in the Horsford 
Crescent Hardy, uh, Match of the Titans, the thriller in the, uh, <laughs> the sagebrush, <laughs> if you will. Um, what 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 are you what are you looking for in, in covering this race? Like to see who's got the momentum. It uh, who's raising money. Um, mm-hmm. The the they just filed recently, so we don't know. We don't really have a good sense of that yet. And uh, it, again, it will be an upset if Democrats lose that seat. Obviously, you pointed that out. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's going to be very interesting. Uh, again, everybody's talking about a possible Democratic wave, so that that favors Horsford, mm-hmm. um, and is one of the only reasons that uh, they're running someone against Amadine. <laughs> <laughs> just have better someone, safe than have sorry, the, right? Just have somebody <laughs> out there. Um, so, like some of these kind of Western issues that you alluded to earlier, like you know we we we've talked a little bit. I mean, we focused on the on the State of the Union. Is there anything that anybody in Nevada would have been like, you know, that's my issue from last night's State of the Union? I mean, I, I was pre- not pressed to see it from putting on my Western hat, my Arizona Western hat. Uh, but I but I may have missed something. Is it, is it military spending? I mean, is, is, I mean, what what is what would be the issues that animate a Nevada voter or a Nevada engaged citizen? I would say the only issue that really uh, piqued the interest of, of the delegation was the immigration issue. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's just a huge issue in Nevada. And um, and will play a decisive role in I think in the in the Heller Rosen race mm-hmm. and and possibly in the Horsford uh, Hardy race, mm-hmm. um, and so the the reaction was really uh, they were very unimpressed with with <laughs> with the speech. They they mm-hmm. thought that the rhetoric uh, was bipartisan, but the actions didn't merit didn't match the rhetoric at all. Um, uh, Senator Cortez Masto, Catherine Cortez Masto, who. Uh, is uh, serves with Dean Heller currently, uh, and Jackie Rosen both brought Salvadoran uh, folks from Vegas who have TPS protection, the temporary mm-hmm. protected status that mm-hmm. uh, that Trump has uh, had canceled or will cancel in 2019, and uh, so so. Immigration weighed heavily on their minds, and uh, they were very disappointed in what they heard from the president because he basically reiterated their uh, his proposal for, that we've known about for a couple weeks now. Mm-hmm. And, they um, they're very disappointed that uh, these issues are being held up because they feel that they are a bipartisan issue, and if you just deal with this DACA issue, deal with this TPS issue, that could be fixed, and then we could talk about a further immigration uh, reform. Um, there, uh, again, Amadai wasn't there. Heller was more interested in, in veterans' issues that mm-hmm. uh, that he that the president talked about, and um, and also the tax the tax bill. Uh, but Jackie Rosen did mention that she said she was touched by uh, some of the people that he, that uh, the president had brought, uh, uh, first responders, people from the armed forces, the the, the North Korean uh, gentleman. Um, she thought she thought that's that's America. We're a nation of immigrants, and that that reflects uh, properly on that uh, on that notion. Yeah, I I was I mean, not to <clears throat> take anything away from you know the. Sort of how long the speech was. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, uh, and by the uh, way, we uh, talked about this earlier. It was the third longest State of the Union in history. Really, third longest. Wow. So, and I feel like I've been there for some of these really long ones, yeah. uh, or at least watched them. Uh, and again, I mean, maybe it wasn't so so much the length as just like there were so many applause lines and so forth. But they that did they did seem to sort of. I mean, like the, the they they figured out a way to bring you know like the, the those sort of like pepper enough of these applause lines and, and like recognition of these folks so that it wasn't an, another American carnage speech. Right, right. right. <laughs> it, it was, yeah. you know, I think 
the delivery, I think, was really good. I, I, it, it sounded like a presidential speech. Some people, I think, said you could, you could mistake it, be forgiven if you're mistaking it for a Bush speech. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of substance. Uh, it w- was the complaint from the, from the delegation right. mostly. And, uh, and you know, for as, as bipartisan, they really uh, sold it as a bipartisan speech. And, and it, uh, it was a little, it, you know, that he didn't really back away from a lot of the red meat right. issues that he's, he's been pounding on. But I also think that, the, like, there was so little in policy content. That's been one of the knocks that I've seen, right? And, and I'm not trying to, like, take a cheap shot at Trump, although I'm not above that. But uh, I'm not trying to do it here. Or below but, it. <laughs> or below it. Uh, but it's, it's sort of like... He has a different view of how the president should lead. We saw that during the shutdown right. deal, right? Like, it wasn't Democrats saying, show us what you want us to do here. It was Republicans going, Mr. President, give us some leadership here on how you want this done. And I think he's just sort of taking a hands-off approach. There weren't a lot of details. It was a lot of big ideas, but not really a way to get those ideas implemented. Infrastructure was like a paragraph. Right. And, and it was like, yeah. $1.5 trillion, but we'll figure, you guys figure well, it you out. You guys, yeah, right. we'll Good let luck. you figure yeah. out how to do it. Like, Speaking of, well, th- here's the old bond buyer in you. Like, is that going to work? I mean, like like $1.3 trillion, just put it on the local and state government level for partnerships? I mean, come on. How realistic? Is that not very like <laughs> you, you, you? You need a, a revenue. You need to raise gas taxes. You uh-huh. need to have some, or a vehicle miles traveled fee or something like that, or, or tolling. Um, but I told I, I, the the bond market itself, if if uh, are, is going to salivate over that tr- mm-hmm. that one point five trillion number though. But how likely could that be that they would even there would be that they'd many? Get, <laughs> they'd get a piece of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one last thing. Uh, you also used to cover budget and approps. No mention of the budget deficit. No mention of the deficit. That's (laughs) that's new. Humberto, thank you so much for coming on the Bill Press Show. Uh, It's been a pleasure. You can follow Humberto on... This is the Bill Press Show.